Okay, so we're going to get started here. So thank you guys for coming today. This is our second of the critical care curriculum for the year. And today we're going to be doing a grand rounds. So we're very fortunate to have um, Dr. Scott Stevens here with us today. Dr. Stevens is an assistant professor of medicine and of oncology at Johns Hopkins. Um, he did his training initially in uh, medicine at um, Penn and then came to Hopkins for his um, his residency and his fellowship. So this week's lecture is meant to be a piggyback of last week's lecture to introduce you to ARDS. Um, Dr. Stevens is one of the investigators um, as part of the lifeguard study, and so he's going to present his work today on mechanical ventilation management during ECMO for ARDS. So please welcome me in joining, please join me in welcoming Dr. Stevens. Thank you. Great. Thank you, uh, Andy, for inviting me. Can you all hear me? This high enough that you can hear me? Perfect. Okay. Um, so thanks for inviting me to be here. This Hopefully uh, there'll be plenty of time at the end of this for questions and such. What I'm not going to focus on is the decision to actually put people on ECMO. We're going to assume that you've made that decision in accordance with your own kind of institutional guidelines, best practices, and talk about what you should do with the ventilator once the person is on ECMO for ARDS. And the short version of the talk, if any of you have to leave early, the short version is we, the short version is we have no idea, and probably whatever you do is not wrong. Um, but some ways maybe more right, and we'll go through that. Um, I don't have any real uh, important financial disclosures, other than that ECMO is always used off-label for ARDS. Uh, it's not an approved indication, technically. Um, so I'm going to give you some background information that's going to cover some what I think is relevant basic science, uh, talk about what people are actually doing, and that's the focus of the lifeguard study, which we just got published. Um, and then some of our best clinical data that we can use for what we should do with the ventilator, and then some emerging data that may guide things in the future. Um, so since it's early in the year, I'm going to assume that there's at least some passing familiarity with ECMO circuits, but I'll, uh, I just wanted to review it just really quickly. So, um, you know, ECMO circuits are actually a lot simpler than the ventilator, and it's actually a lot easier to manage an ECMO circuit than it is to manage a mechanical ventilator. You have a pump, a centrifugal pump, that drains blood usually from in a venovenous configuration from a large vein, pumps it through an oxygen, a membrane oxygenator, a polymethylpentane membrane. You've got gas on one side, blood on the other. These things are highly efficient. They work really well. They're pretty biocompatible. And then the outflow limb goes back in a venovenous uh, configuration into the right atrium and hopefully right across the tricuspid valve. This is a really good schematic. You will notice the one thing that is missing, on, and this is from uh, Dan Brody and Matt Pachetta's paper in 2011. The one thing that is missing on this schematic is any uh, picture of the lungs. So the impression you get is that when you're on ECMO, you can totally neglect the actual uh, existence of the lungs, which probably isn't right. And this is a really typical um, course of what happens to the lungs once they once you get put on ECMO. You can see this is someone right, on, right as they get, get cannulated, and they definitely have ARDS. They have bilateral infiltrates. You can see why they're pretty hypoxemic. And over the course of the next few days, we trach this person pretty early, um, their lungs just turn to concrete. And when I first started managing patients on ECMO, I was like, wow, has this happened to everyone? Do the lungs just do this? And so I called up a couple friends at Columbia and Toronto and said, do you guys have the same experience? And they said, yes, we absolutely do. The lungs just turn to concrete. Um, but you still have to think about how to manage them. So I should say at the beginning that no one knows what the best way to manage people's lungs on ECMO are. All right, but there are some theoretical goals that are worth thinking about. Um, Probably agree it's a good idea, and you guys, I think, heard about this last week, that we should use protective pressures and protective volumes. 
Um, we should probably maintain recruitment, and we probably should give a little bit of tidal ventilation. It probably shouldn't be just a static breath. And I'll give you some preclinical data as to why that is. And let's start with the, and this is actually clinical data, um, let's start with the tidal volume. So this, these two papers represent standard of care for ARDS, as far as I'm concerned. Low tidal volume mechanical ventilation and prone positioning in severe ARDS. But we know that both of these modalities are totally underused, right? So this is data from the Lung Safe study, which was published in JAMA in 2016. Multinational study, several, uh, over 2,000 patients with ARDS. And if you look at what mean uh, tidal volume was during their ICU course, here's 6 cc's per kilo. Most patients are getting mo way more than 6 cc's per kilo during their um, uh, uh, tidal volume during their hospitalization. Even fewer, pa and also fewer patients are getting uh, neuromuscular blockade. This is before the Rose study was published, so people still thought this was probably standard of care to do. And only 16% were getting prone, right? So these standard of care conventional therapies are dramatically underused. You all should be familiar with this from last week, the ARMA study from 2000, from 2000 looking at low tidal volume ventilation, the survival advantage um, in severe ARDS. But what people sometimes forget about is that when th this data was analyzed in a secondary fashion, and in the ARMA study, they targeted 60 cc's per kilo and a plateau pressure less than 30. Those are the two things they tried to achieve. But there are patients who had plateau pressures much less than that. And if you look at what day one plateau pressure was versus mortality, here's 30. And there's an inflection point here, which is probably why that was picked. But the slope is still negative here. And so 28 is better than 30, 26 is better than 28, 24 is better than 26, et cetera, et cetera. Um, more recently, we've thought about using driving pressure as a way to target mechanical ventilation in patients with ARDS. Um, and this is the paper that Marcelo Amato published in 2015. And they reported that a driving pressure of 14, below that is where you saw um, a survival benefit. And this was all a secondary analysis of previously collected data, right? But 14. But if you look at this carefully, this slope is also still negative. So lower driving pressures than 14, than what we, the minimum that we target, are probably better. And these data probably apply to ECMO patients as well. What about recruitment? You know, should we let the lungs just totally collapse? Or should we think about trying to keep them inflated? These are old data um, from 2004 looking at ischemia reperfusion injury in rat lungs and essentially induce ischemia reperfusion either in a statically inflated lung, so you just inflate the lung with gas and clamp off the trachea, keep it inflated while you do your um, ischemia, versus not doing that at all. And it turns out just static inflation, even without ventilation, maintaining that recruitment is protective. What about tidal ventilation? So... Our lungs evolved in an environment where they're exposed to constant movement, right? We're constantly breathing. We're not breathing in a linearly fashion. We're expanding, uh, contracting, expanding, contracting. And so it makes sense teleologically that our cells have, adapt have evolved to expect and even depend on that ventilation. And these are in vitro data that support just that. So these are um, lung epithelial cells that were exposed to hyperoxic conditions either in the presence of cyclic stretch, so you can put you can grow cells on a membrane and stretch it in a, at low amplitudes at a reasonable frequency. And it turns out that, um, so room air is here, room air with stretch, no big difference. Hyperoxia, with time, induces a huge amount of dead cells that's markedly attenuated when you stretch those cells as they're exposed to hyperoxia. And so this attenuates oxidant injury. Same thing applies in endothelial cells. These are uh, aortic endothelial cells exposed to TNF-alpha, and at um, you can hit a threshold of stretch, which probably 
um, uh, this is viable percent of control that are viable cells. Uh, at, you, pr you hit a threshold of stretch that is protective against TNF-induced apoptosis. We've seen the same thing in intact lung models. These are sheep lungs that were, um, that were either ventilated or not during ischemia reperfusion. And it turns out that when you ventilate ischemic sheep lungs, you decrease, or rather, you increase the reflection coefficient, which is a measurement of, it's inverse, but it's a measurement of decreased pulmonary edema formation. So ventilation is probably protective, and that actually doesn't matter whether you use oxygen or not. You can ventilate lungs, as they did in this study with rabbit lungs, with nitrogen. So you don't even need to ventilate with oxygen. It can be totally anoxic ventilation. And that motion of ventilation is protective against a variety of insults. So probably, even in ECMO patients, probably, maybe, we should maintain some degree of tidal ventilation. There are, when you move this into the human realm, probably the most relevant data prior to the last five years or so were in patients on cardiopulmonary bypass. So what do you do with a patient who is on bypass in the operating room? Here the data conflict. There have been a few studies which show that uh, if you maintain ventilation during cardiopulmonary bypass, you have less lung injury and less multi-organ complications um, post-operatively. Now, surgeons don't like this because then they've got a moving target rather than a completely still thorax. Um, and some studies have not confirmed this. But I think on balance, there probably is a protective effect to maintaining ventilation during cardiopulmonary bypass. So what about ventilation in ECMO? What are the data we have on that? So these are data from 2015 and 2016, um, looking at plateau pressure before and in the first few hours of, or first few days of ECMO. And significant difference in survivors versus non-survivors in plateau pressure before ECMO was commenced, but not, not once ECMO was started. Part of that, though, is that at this point, everyone had low plateau pressures, right? So maybe there just wasn't enough of a signal for difference. Driving pressure, same thing. So if you look at ECMO day one, first day that the person goes on ECMO, survivors had, a, had significantly lower driving pressures than non-survivors, right? And so driving pressure remembers the difference between plateau pressure, and inspiratory plateau pressure, and PEEP. Um, and this was significantly associated with, although it's a small effect, it was significant. One problem with driving pressure is that depending on the mode that you use, right, if you're on a pressure-cycled mode, whether it's pressure support or pressure control, you don't know what your delta is, right? So on a volume-cycled mode, you know what your plateau pressure is and you know what your PEEP is. On a pressure-cycled mode, you don't know how much inspiratory effort the patient is making. So on a spontaneously breathing person, their pleural pressure may drop precipitously, right? Young, a young spontaneously breathing person, pleural pressure of negative 30, negative 40 centimeters of water. Machine doesn't realize that. It keeps inflating to whatever target you set it at when you're on a pressure-controlled or pressure-support setting. So that transpulmonary pressure, the difference between alveolar pressure and pleural pressure, which is probably the injurious pressure, can be really, really high. And this was a paper that Tommaso Mori published um, in 2016, looking at um, the difference between pleural pressure, the, between esophageal pressure with spontaneous ventilation versus non-spontaneous ventilation on ECMO, and the, the transpulmonary pressure, I don't know if you can read this down here, but, but P sub L, so on a pressure-controlled mode, or pressure-support mode, rather, the transpulmonary pressure of 38, which is a huge transpulmonary pressure and probably pretty injurious, when they put that same person on a volume-controlled mode, that dropped to 12. So you do have to approach pressure-support or pressure-control in a spontaneously breathing person with lung injury with some degree of, uh, uh, of caution because you just don't know how big of a pressure, how big of a transpulmonary pressure they're developing.
Um, and this is a graphical, a graphical representation the same. So a passively breathing person on a volume assist control mode, this is a pretty fixed, this transpulmonary pressure is pretty fixed. On a passively breathing person on pressure assist control, this is fixed. On a volume assist control mode, when the patient makes a spontaneous effort, it just drops down the plateau pressure as well as uh, the esophageal pressure, the pleural pressure. So this delta doesn't change. But on a pressure control mode, this drops, this stays the same because the machine inflates this to whatever pressure you target, and this transpulmonary pressure can increase. So really, you need to be careful with pressure-controlled modes um, in ARDS patients and in ECMO patients. What about PEEP? Um, at least based on this data, it looks like PEEP beforehand. Higher PEEP was associated with ICU, survi with ICU survivorship, and for the first couple days, higher PEEP seemed to be better than lower PEEP. You know, again, these are observational data. But that probably goes along with maintaining some degree of recruitment. Recruitment is also good meaning that if you can get tidal volumes on ECMO, that is better than not getting tidal volumes. Whether that's a function of what you choose to do with the ventilator or just the mechanical properties of the lung, it's probably the latter. You can see how they diverged in survivors as their lungs, we think, improved, more compliant, bigger tidal volumes uh, than in the non-survivors. So there have been various approaches to how people actually manage patients on ECMO, and this is just a sampling of them. So in the CSER trial, which was in 2019, remember, they targeted a peak inspiratory pressure of 20 to 25 with a PEEP of 10 to 15, so a driving pressure of about 10. They set the respiratory rate at 10 breaths a minute and dropped the FiO2 as low as they could, which is about 0.3. Um, this is an extracorporeal CO2 removal paper. They dropped their tidal volume to 3 cc's per kilo, and the respiratory rate 10 to 25, 1 to 1 IDE ratio, and they used a high PEEP approach. The ELSO guidelines, and if you go to the University of Michigan, what they do is in the initial 20, 48 hours, they use inverse ratio pressure control at 25 over 15 with an IDE of 2 to 1, 50% oxygen, a respiratory rate of 5. Then they go to 20 over 10, still inverse ratio, and drop the FiO2 lower after 48 hours, and they will move the trach people very early. The EOLIA study protocol, the multi-center study, which was uh, the French mul was multinational, it was predominantly French, was published last May. They used volume assist control or APRV, uh, but most patients got volume assist control, to target a plateau pressure less than 25, and they kept their PEEP greater than 10, so a driving pressure of, of 15 or less, and the FiO2, whatever they could get away with. Our traditional approach at Hopkins, for no real reason other than that this made sense to us, was to use pressure control of 10 over 10 to 15 of PEEP. Um, at a respiratory rate of 10, and then we dropped the FiO2 as low as we could. I'm not sure this is actually the right way to do it, but this is what we have been done, what we have been doing. So the question is, these are all study protocols than our own local protocol, but what are people actually doing? And this is the lifeguard study um, that was published uh, just, uh, actually still, I technically impressed, it hasn't come out in the paper version yet. Um, but it was an international multi-center prospective cohort. We collected the data about three or four years ago. Um, we participated, actually, Dan Hare and the cardiac sick uh, you here participated as well, so some of these data reflect patients here. Um, there was 23 ICUs, 10 countries, and we looked for an entire year at anyone who was on ECMO and what their ventilator settings were immediately pre-ECMO, then for the first few days of ECMO, and then long-term outcomes, and we ended up with 350 patients. Um, this is a quick look at some of the characteristics. You can, uh, you can, uh, peruse this if you want to. There's not a whole lot that's terribly interesting here, other than it's a pretty standard ARDS population. What is interesting is what people are actually doing. Now, granted, these were all high-volume centers. These are centers that have a decent amount of experience with ECMO. 
But you see, pre-ECMO, it's about 50-50 split between a volume-controlled mode and a pressure-targeted mode. By day, on day one of ECMO, though, vast majority of centers were using a pressure-controlled mode. Um, and then that stayed relatively constant, and the volume-controlled mode just kind of went away during their patient's ECMO course. And then post-ECMO, you see a little more volume. But really a lot of um, pressure control mode. The other thing that gradually increased over the time of being on ECMO was the other. These were things that weren't uh, modes that we didn't have a, uh, an entry on the, um, on the data entry form. At our institution, that was actually predominantly wall CPAP. So it turns out patients' lungs get so stiff on ECMO if you use a pressure-controlled mode that you just don't generate any tidal volume. And turn, you can only set the minute ventilation alarm on ventilators so low. And so at extremely stiff lungs, you get the ventilators alarming constantly for low minute ventilation. So our solution to that was just to take patients off the ventilator and put them on a, on a flow-by oxygen setup with a PEEP valve on it, just so we could keep constant PEEP. And I think we accounted for, the, for a substantial portion of the other modality, because that's what we used in almost everyone. Um, you can see that, you know, there... We think about ECMO as being a modality that people can get extubated on or they don't need to be intubated on. See, for here, for ARDS, that's probably really not the case, at least early on. Very few patients are actually extubated or taken off the ventilator entirely, um, other than taken off positive pressure entirely. Uh, and that's probably because it's really tough to normalize someone's oxygenation with an ECMO circuit. The other thing that we saw was a dramatic decrease in both tidal volume and driving pressure once people got put on ECMO. So you put someone on ECMO. This is the pre-ECMO tidal volume. You can see what the distribution looks like. Most people were below 6 cc per kilo, but this really shifted down that most people were somewhere around 4 cc's per kilo once the patient was on ECMO. And same thing with driving pressure. It went from about 14 or so to closer to um, 14, 18 to closer to 10 or 12 once someone was on ECMO. So people were using ECMO to drop the mechanical ventilation settings. Um, there was no difference, surprisingly, in either, uh, in when you stratified it by survivors who were in green or non-survivors who were in orange, no difference between the mechanical power delivered to the lung, and I'll talk about that in a second, or in the driving pressure delivered to the lung. Right? So everyone had low mechanical power, everyone had low driving pressure. Um, and so neither of these was associated with survival, maybe because everyone got this and this was more of a constant than anything else. So what is driving, what is mechanical power? So this is a, um, a concept that Lucenio Gattinoni has uh, developed to describe actually how much energy the mechanical ventilator is giving to the lung on a breath-to-breath -breath basis. And this is the equation up here, um, which is complex, and, it, but, and so it's, it's easier to look at it in a graphical format. So if you look at the change in any component versus the change in power delivered, so PEEP, it's a really pretty shallow curve, or a really pretty shallow slope. So if you want to maintain recruitment, use PEEP, you, for every step of PEEP, you're, giving, you're increasing the power delivered to the lung relatively, in a relatively low fashion. Respiratory rate, much steeper slope, so higher respiratory rates, probably because you're creating a lot of shear stress with each breath, each exhalation. You actually dramatically increase the power delivered, and then as you increase driving pressure and tidal volume, this also dramatically increases the power and the injury delivered to the lungs. So what were the main findings of lifeguards? The first is that um, there were actually relatively low rates, and I didn't show these data, of pre-ECMO optimization, meaning a lot of patients didn't get prone, didn't get paralyzed before they got put in ECMO. 
that was kind of disappointing. But we also found that ultra-protective ventilation with a very low driving pressure, very low tidal volume, that's really common on ECMO. This is what high-volume centers have been doing um, with patients. And the, the driving pressure and power dropped in everyone, both survivors and non-survivors, which made it really tough to actually suss out whether there was a beneficial effect to dropping it because this was more of a constant than anything else. So if you were a nihilist or a pessimist, you might look at these data and say, okay, fine, vent settings on ECMO don't matter. You can do whatever you want to so long as you maintain, um, so long as you maintain relatively low pressures. But I think they actually act, the, the, uh, the settings actually do matter I think, um, and the, like I said, the reason we didn't see a difference based on mode was because ultra-protective modes were so commonly used. So then we have the Eolia study, which came out after we started collecting for lifeguards and probably should dictate what we're doing with the ventilator now in the current era. So remember, Eolia was stopped early for futility, even though um, it looked like the groups were separating out for survival. But based on stopping rules, they had to stop early, um, and it, this was not actually statistically significant. The secondary outcome of survival without treatment failure, meaning you didn't need to go on ECMO if you were in the conventional group, that was actually highly significant. Um, but since it's a secondary outcome, it didn't dictate whether you could stop at all. But I think, and I, I think that there that there is a signal here, and that there are definitely a population of patients who will benefit from ECMO. We don't really know how to figure out which group that is. Um, but there is, you know, I think there is actually an effect here, and we should pay attention to the results of Eolia. These were the inclusion criteria. Just to remind you, there were three ways that you could get in. You had to have really severe hypoxemia for three hours, a little less severe hypoxemia for six hours, or a pH of 7.25 with a high PCO2 due to the attempts to drop tidal volume enough to decrease inspiratory pressure for more than six hours. This is the configuration they used. They, um, obviously, it was venovenous in the vast majority of patients. Interestingly, very few patients got the Avalon dual lumen cannula, and most patients were, were two-site cannulation, FEM-IJ configuration. Um, and I think that's actually an important point. I'm not sure we should be doing Avalons in the majority of ARDS patients anymore um, based on this. And then this was their ventilator strategy. So you can see the control strategy over here, but we're going to focus most on this. So they used a volume assist control strategy with the tidal volume lowered to keep the plateau pressure less than 24 and the PEEP at least 10. So they were um, guaranteeing a driving pressure of less than 14. And a minority of patients got APRV with a dry, um, at 24 over 10, so not a PEEP of zero, not a expiratory pressure of zero um, or a decompression pressure of zero, but of 10, so a functional driving pressure of 14 here as well. In practice, either to achieve this to get the plateau pressure less than 24 or um, on APRV settings, based on how stiff the patient's lungs are, most patients got very, very, very small tidal volumes, like sub-100 cc tidal volumes. This is the effect of ECMO on oxygenation, both in PO2 and saturation. And you can see that on PO2, there was never a significant difference between the ECMO group and the non-ECMO group. Right? So if we, if we believe that there actually was a survival effect due to ECMO, it wasn't because oxygenation was better. Right? This is exactly the same. There was a little bit of a difference early on in saturation, but I'm not really, I don't really think that a saturation of 91 versus, uh, versus 94 is clinically significant. So I don't think this is pointing us to a signal either, right? So oxygenation is not the reason that, if we believe ECMO saved lives, it's not because we did better with oxygenation. Same thing with ventilation. 
So there was a difference in PCO2, 50 versus 35, and then you can see how this was maintained out over the course of their ECMO run. But the pH, seven, you know, 7.25 to 7.35, we tolerate hypercarbia really well, and I really don't think that this difference, and you see how quickly this, you know, the difference between 7.35 and 7.4, that doesn't seem like a clinically relevant difference either, right? So ECMO probably doesn't save lives by normalizing gas exchange. What it did do is allow a dramatic decrease in respiratory rate. Remember, respiratory rate contributes to the power delivered to the lungs, the injurious aspects of mechanical ventilation. No real change in PEEP, but a significant change both in minute ventilation, right? So this is minute ventilation is a, essentially that is, a, that is one reflection of, of mechanical power delivered, and tidal volumes. And you see how dramatically the tidal volume drop was, right? And the median, at randomization, median tidal volumes were six cc's per kilo. So this is down to two and a half, three, three and a half cc's per kilo. So a really significant drop in tidal volume in the ECMO group. And with that, plateau pressure dropped and driving pressure dropped, right? So the effect of ECMO, the benefit of ECMO isn't in normalizing gas exchange, but in allowing us to target less injurious mechanical ventilation practices. Um, and, you know, I think we sh as we're thinking about how we manage patients on ECMO, that should be our goal. Probably should be our goal in deploying ECMO, too, in order to facilitate low tidal volume ventilation. But when we're putting, when we're managing patients on ECMO, we should be really striving to get the tidal volume as low as we can get. In keeping with that, if you look at the subgroups in EOLI and you look at which groups had a predilection towards benefit, no benefit in the hypoxemic groups, the suggestion of benefit was actually in the group that had high plateau pressures and you put them on so that you could drop their plateau pressures even further. So even when we're thinking about ventilating patients on ECMO, the paradigm of managing ARDS, low tidal volume ventilation, that's still the same as it is in patients who are not on ECMO, right? So ECMO is not a, it's not an alternative to mechanical ventilation at the moment. It's a way of facilitating lower tidal volume and more lung protective ventilation. So is this what we should be doing on, should we be doing on this on everyone uh, who's on ECMO? We put them on volume control and we drop their tidal volume until we get a plateau pressure less than 24, or you do APRV essentially to achieve the same settings. Is this what we should be doing? It's probably not the final story. We really don't know if there is an optimum mode. Probably not as long as you are as protective as possible, but uh, we really don't know if it's optimum. We really don't know what optimum gas exchange targets are, right? What, how... How, what degree of hypoxemia can we tolerate? We don't know what the difference in FDO2, meaning the oxygen being delivered through the ECMO circuit versus inspired FiO2. We don't know what that difference should be. Should patients spontaneously breathe? Don't know the answer to that. And then how low should we actually target our tidal volume? As to the, the, I think the mode question is tough to answer because probably you can achieve whatever you want to do with any particular mode. What about gas exchange? So what, what is the target? What PO2 should we target, right? Because it is really tough to normalize people's oxygenation on ECMO. So should we, and so you are often forced to use the lungs, you know, PO2 of 80, 60, 55, 40. Um, and the same thing with pH, right? How low of a pH are we willing to tolerate? When you're adjusting oxygenation and ventilation in ECMO, remember I said ECMO is really simple. So there are really only three parameters that you can adjust. You can just flow, and you can just sweep, and you can adjust the amount of oxygen going to the gas blender. Ventilation is the same as sweep. That's just the rate at which gas is flushing out the oxygenator. Um, and it's 
the oxygenators are really efficient at removing CO2. So this is pretty easy to manage. Oxygenation you adjust by increasing the amount of oxygen in that blender and also by increasing circuit flow rates. Right? So at higher flow rates, you're matching more of the patient's cardiac output, you're going to get better oxygenation. The trick is, though, that it, in a young person who's got, um, who has pneumonia and is also septic or is highly inflamed, their cardiac output is going to be really high. And it is tough to get an ECMO flow rate of more than 5 or 6 liters a minute. A young person may have a cardiac output of 10 liters a minute, and so you're just really tough to match that. So because of all this, it, a typical oxygen saturation, even on full VV ECMO support, is somewhere in the 80, 80 85, maybe 90% range if you're lucky. Um, so you can consider alternative configurations. You can try a veno-veno-arterial configuration, so you're putting some oxygenated blood in the arterial circuit. Or you need to use more of the native lungs to get your oxygenation up to whatever target you are willing to deal with. I think this is actually, this was a really cool study, although I'm glad I didn't participate in it. Um, so they, this, this was published back in 2009, and what they did was take blood gases, um, femoral blood gases, on people as they were summiting Everest. So they didn't actually get it all the way up at the summit. Um, they got the final one here at 8,400 meters. I mean, you can imagine doing a femoral arterial stick at 8,400 meters and having to both drop your pants and hold pressure on that. Um, but look at PO2 is the, is the light color one. And you can, at 75 meters, you know, our PO2 here is roughly 100, right? You drop that down at the, at the balcony of Everest, their PO2 was somewhere around 25. And these people make it down, generally, and they're probably relatively cognitively intact. Um, but, you know, and these are well-conditioned, acclimated mountaineers. Um, but, you know, our human tolerance of hypoxemia is probably a lot better than we think it is. More relatable to most of us, um, if you look at what people, you know, this, and these are actually things that people uh, at altitudes people live at and deconditioned people go to on vacation all the time. You can see what your arterial PO2 is in Baltimore, 98. San Antonio, 91. Santa Fe, the highest state capital in the country, 67. Loveland Pass, have you ever driven over Loveland Pass? It is a winding road without any guardrails, and people manage to navigate that with a PO2 of 49. And then at the highest lift-serve lift ski territory in the U.S., at 12,840 12, feet, PO2 of 46. People go from here, flatlanders go out there all the time, and they come back cognitively intact. Um, and so, you know, we can tolerate hypoxemia longer and better than we probably think we can. And these are actually data that support that. This is, these were patients, um, this was published in 2017, where they did patients who were on ECMO for ARDS, and then they did a battery of cognitive tests on them afterwards. And I don't pretend to know what all these things mean or what all the normal values are, but what I can tell you is that in all these, in all these patients, seven patients, different levels of education, no real cognitive impairment after pretty significant hypoxemia on ECMO. So we may not need to get people's oxygenation on ECMO as high as we think we do. We may not need to control to uh, use people's native lungs as much as we think we need to. Hypercarbia is usually less of a problem just because the circuit is so efficient at pulling off CO2. But even then, these are old data from 1990 and 1994 without ECMO, looking at patients with ARDS, and the extremes of um, both PDF and PCO2 that people tolerated. Survivors in this column, non-survivors in this column, the patients are tolerating PCO2s all the way up to about 100 without any real adverse out outcomes. So you probably don't need to dramatically normalize people's gas exchange. 
Another issue that come, comes up, though, the, so the flip, so what this might say is you can go ahead and, and dial the FiO2 on the ventilator down as low as you want to. This is the flip side argument, right? It, that um, that will predispose you to nitrogen absorption and atelectasis. So if you decrease the FiO2 as much as you can and you on the ventilator and just use your oxygenator for oxygenation, um, you make up the difference in FiO2, right, in your inspired gas with nitrogen. So if you go drop that down to 20% oxygen, now you're inhaling 80% oxygen. On the, on the oxygenator, no nit I'm sorry, you've got 80% nitrogen. On the oxygenator, you've got no nitrogen. So now there's a huge uptake gradient from the lungs into the blood of nitrogen. And it turns out nitrogen is not as diffusible as carbon dioxide or oxygen, but it is still diffusible. Um, and so now your alveolar nitrogen pressure dramatically exceeds your arterial nitrogen pressure. That shifts, and you get atelectasis and collapse. And so this is why some people think, including Luciano Gattinoni, um, why some people think that you get this just concretization of lungs on ECMO, is that you go on ECMO and people turn the FiO2 on the ventilator down as low as they can almost immediately, you get atelectasis. So what Luciano says is that you can prevent this by essentially matching your FiO2 to your FdO2. So if you're on 100% on the oxygenator, put the ventilator 100%, then gradually walk them down in tandem, and that keeps the nitrogen gradient intact so you don't get atelectasis. Um, now, the flip side of this argument is that we know oxygen is toxic, and there is, oxygen, oxygen use lung injury is a real thing. And so, you know, at what point do you prioritize maybe predisposing someone to atelectasis versus avoiding oxygen lung injury? Then there's the question of spontaneous breathing, right? So is it good or bad for patients to spontaneously breathe when they're on ECMO? We have no idea, right? There are some data, even so even in, spontane in non-intubated patients, that spontaneous breathing can cause lung injury. So if you're making big respiratory efforts, you're dropping your pleural pressure, you can cause lung injury. So maybe if you eliminate spontaneous breathing, you will protect the lungs. But there are other data that noisy breathing or spontaneous breathing is actually beneficial. And this is some of the thought behind why APRV may or may not be beneficial, that you can preserve spontaneous breathing throughout the respiratory cycle. So spontaneous breathing may be beneficial if you, depending on the model you look at. Then um, there's a guy at Toronto named Ewan Goliger whose interest is in diaphragm-protective mechanical ventilation, right? And so his argument is that if you eliminate spontaneous breathing, the diaphragm atrophies really quickly, and we know the diaphragm atrophies really quickly in surgical biopsy studies, right? You put someone on the ventilator for surgery, you biopsy the diaphragm, you see muscle atrophy very, very quickly. Um, and then those patients stay on the ventilator longer because um, their diaphragm atrophies so quickly. So he argues that spontaneous breathing protects the diaphragm because you still have some muscular activity. So we have no idea what to do with this, whether or not we should allow patients on ECMO to spontaneously breathe or not. In the last couple minutes, there's a, there are some emerging data in animal models um, that suggest the extremes of low pressures and low volumes may actually be beneficial. And none of these have been confirmed in clinical studies, but I think they're kind of interesting. Um, I, well, this was actually a clinical study, though. It's a very basic study. So they randomized patients to different levels of protective ventilation and essentially saw at the lowest, at the most protective ventilation, lower levels of both plasma cytokines and BAL rage protein, right? So these are things that cause, we think are involved in lung injury, and by using extreme low, um, extreme lung protective uh, ventilatory strategies, realize that final column over there doesn't show up there, what is it on this? but it, its median is somewhere around here, and that's the low protective strategy. 
um, we may be able to attenuate the biochemistry of lung injury. And then there was this study, which was published uh, just a few months ago, looking at 18 pigs. They took them and did a saline lavage injury and then randomized the three groups. They did an injurious group, which was 10 cc's per kilo. They did a conventional group, which was 6 cc's per kilo. And then a near-apneic group. This, they essentially did what we do with our ECMO patients, peep of 10, driving pressure of 10, five breaths a minute. Um, and so this is a schematic of it. They had a sham group, the lung injury group, and then the ventilator settings. They maintained these for 24 hours. Um, and so you can see what happened to driving pressure. The near-apneic is the open circles. So near-apneic pigs got very low driving pressures compared to the other ones, and very little, almost no mechanical power delivered for lungs because they had such low tidal volumes. And then they did histology studies on them. So this is the sham, the normal lungs. Non-protective ventilation, so the injurious mechanical ventilation. You can see all the neutrophils, the hyaline membranes. This is an inflamed, injured lung, right? And this is the conventional protective, what we do in most of our patients. And this is the near-apneic injury, right? So... You can see this looks much more akin to the uninjured lung than to either of these two things. And then they did a histology score, which confirmed exactly the same thing. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever spent time actually doing histology studies on lungs. Turns out it's really easy to make these look what you want them to look like because you just inflate them at different pressures. Or you know, you can, there are ways you can manipulate these data. So I, histology studies you should always kind of take with a little bit of a grain of salt. But this is really pretty convincing. Then they looked at what happened to fibroblast activity, right? So we think that as you have ARDS and you have progressive injury on the mechanical ventilator, you get collagen, you get fibrosis, and this is kind of the, you know, the organizing phase of lung injury. And the, the brown staining are the fibroblasts, so that correlates with injury. Sham group, non-protective ventilation, conventional protective ventilation, near-apneic group, and you want to compare alveoli to alveoli, much less fibrosis in the alveoli um, in the near-apneic group than in the non-apneic than in the conventional groups. So to summarize, and then we can, I think I'll be finished right on time. We really, when we're using ECMO, we should use it as, both in our choice to deploy it, but then once the patient is on it, we should use it as an adjunct to maximize lung protection, not as an end in and unto itself. If you wanted to say what is the best current evidence to put someone on, it should be to use ultra-low tidal volumes, keep your plateau pressures less than 24, your driving pressure less than 14, Probably lower is better, right? So if you can get away with lower tidal volumes and lower driving pressures, that's probably better. Um, the mode probably does not matter as long as you target these things. You could do this on pressure control. You could do this on volume control. You could do this on APRV. The only caveat I would say is that you want to be very careful in a spontaneously breathing person that their tidal volumes are small, right? You can have very small pressure gradients on a spontaneous breathing person and a big tidal volume. That big tidal volume is injurious. Um, so you just need to be careful of that. And then there is a lot of work ongoing to define best practices in mechanical ventilation on ECMO and what we should do next. Um, Eddie Fan at Toronto has a cohort called the Solve ARDS cohort, which is a, he's thinking about how to randomize patients to different ventilatory modes. So there is work going on in this. And I think this is the future of what we do, I think. Even if you believe in ECMO or don't, this is the future. So it's going to be relatively interesting. So with that, I think we have time for questions or complaints. About everything. Yeah, okay. Clearly got my head wrapped on it. I, just to go to the last bit, um, 
if we do tolerate hypoxemia well, which we do, uh, and we do know that hyperoxia is injurious, well, we don't want to collapse too much. We're worried that you know we're introducing nitrogen. Is there an inert gas study that is coming where we're going to have an? Uh, are we headed that direction? So that's a good question, and I, not that I'm aware of. Um, inert gases are tough to ventilate people with. I mean, you can ventilate with you can ventilate them with it, but you know, like when you do it in animal models, it, they're almost always uh, fatal models. Um, and so I don't know that we. And I think you would have to pick an inert gas if you did inert gas ventilation. You have to pick an inert gas that didn't um, uh, cause absorption, right? right. So you almost have to equal, and almost all these things will absorb at high enough uh, pressure gradients. So you'd almost have to be bleeding that into the um, oxygenator circuit as well. Yeah, so I, I don't know what the, uh, I'm not sure if that's gonna be, the, I'm not sure if that's the approach or if the approach is just to do a balanced approach. And you know, the thing I didn't talk about is we know that in, in uh, reperfusion after myocardial infarctions or reperfusion after strokes, that high arterial PO2s are associated with worse outcomes, right? So if you reperfuse your brain after a stroke with very oxygenated blood, that's bad. You reperfuse coronaries with very oxygenated blood, that's bad. So I'm not entirely sure that pumping hyperoxygenated blood through the pulmonary artery in an injured lung is a good thing. I don't know that it's not a good thing. But I bet that probably the best course ultimately is going to be trying to um, bring them down relatively in tandem to minimize both uh, both FiO2, both the FiO2 and the FDO2. FDO2. And that made it, what you're able to achieve may just depend on the individual patient. Yeah, so I, I, I didn't show that because just to focus on the ventilator itself, but yes, in lifeguards and in almost every other cohort that I'm aware of, a negative fluid balance, in, especially in the first 24 hours of ECMO, is associated with better outcomes. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it, it can be tough to pull fluid off too quickly, just because if you're so, you know, the circuits can be preload dependent. So if you need very high flow rates on your circuit to maintain oxygenation, it can be tough to drop to pull fluid off. But that should be a priority as well as getting people as dry as you can tolerate as early as you can. Yeah, and that's a good question, right? It depends on, you know, at any, at any degree of lung permeability, if, you're, uh, if your hydrostatic pressures are high, your leak, and your, your leak is going to be worse, your compliance is going to be worse. So, yeah, that, I'm sure that, that is a large part of it. How would you manage the uh, muscle blockade after the patient's ARDS goes on ECMO? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, so we like there, there are and there are no good data on this. We know that a lot of patients in Eolia and a lot of patients in lifeguards in the first few days were paralyzed and heavily sedated. Um, and we don't know whether that is you know whether that's a beneficial thing or not once you're on. Um, especially in light of the Rose uh, result, right, that we don't, that early neuromuscular blockade and severe ARDS may not be beneficial. Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of patients are so tough to oxygenate once you put them on ECMO 
that in order to keep them from making spontaneous efforts, which not only affects what their um, the volumes that they're getting on the ventilator, but also affects their flow on the ECMO circuit, you very frequently need to keep them paralyzed for all, or for a little while. But we should we try to minimize that as much as we can and wake them up as quickly as we can and still oxygenate them appropriately. Thanks.